coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. And the bluegills are just kind of going about their regular business, no big deal. And then all of a sudden, something rings a bell. And the bluegills get all tense. And they're like, oh, crap, mom's going to eat now. <laughs> I hope it's not me. And the, the whole demeanor of the, of the surrounding area changes. And all of a sudden, that fish goes from, I don't know, looking like it was asleep to, I'm going to eat something now. That was Bill Shear taking us into musky country, connecting to one of our favorite predators today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thank you for stopping by the show. If you get a chance, would love it. If you could stop in on your social media app, and maybe that's uh, Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is, uh, check in with me there and uh, and check out. Just say hey, let me know your uh, let me know where you are on the social on the social web. Angler's Coffee roasts full range of coffees with one goal in mind: delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go, tea bag option, and the roast sampler, Joe has you covered. Head over to wetflyswing.com/anglers to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. We are also supported by Jackson Hole Fly Company. A new kind of online fly shop, they design and manufacture their own high-quality fly rods, reels, gear, and over 1,000 fly patterns. Right now, you can get 25% off your first order. You can go to jhflyco.com swing to get started right now. That's jhflyco.com swing to get 25% off. Check it out right now. Really easy. Flies. You always need some flies, right? Let's do it. Grab some flies before we get started here. How's it going, Bill? Pretty good, Dave. Enjoying the uh, <laughs> winter weather still. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We were just joking offline. Uh, the uh, I, I was highlighting the the Tim Landwehr episode where he, he mentioned the uh, you got to embrace the suck. So so describe the suck for you this year quickly. What, what what's the weather been like? It's just been awful. I mean, like I said, we had thirty nine days straight of sub zero temperatures at one point. I'm, I'm looking out my back window. I've got. Uh, two feet of snow on the ground and six foot snow banks still around my buildings. It's just, I wish it would end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you guys are in a pretty amazing part of the country up in Wisconsin, which, you know, you obviously get plenty of snow. Um, but we're going to dig into kind of Wisconsin today and maybe a little on musky and a little of the fly shop. Uh, you've got a cool, you know, really great fly shop going there. Um, before we get into all that, take us back quickly to fly fishing. How'd you first get into fly fishing? Then we'll dig into the shop and everything. Well, I was born into fly fishing. I, I didn't have much choice. My father and my grandfather both fly fished. I was tying flies by the time I was six years old. So uh, for me, it, it just kind of came naturally. Yes, I strayed off the path a little bit when, uh, when I was in high school, but then when I got back in college, um, and, and got around other parts of the world that had more opportunities for trout fishing. I got more into trout fishing during that time period. I was, I, I lived on a lake, a large lake in Vilas County in Northern Wisconsin. So warm water fishing was 
primarily our forte, but it was still with flies. Yeah. So it's always been flies for you. You haven't strayed off of that track too much. Yeah, I did a little bit. I mean, I, I haven't owned a spinning rod since like 1970. Yeah. So <laughs> that's right. That's a pretty good, that's what is that? Yeah. I always think back now you think back to the seventies, like, wow. That was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was in high school then. <laughs> exactly. We were talking about the, um, we had this episode on Umpqua Feather Merchants recently, and Russ Miller described back in the late 60s the Umpqua story and, and what they were doing back then, right? They were traveling around the country selling flies and stuff. It was really interesting. It, I mean, the times were different back then, but I mean, when you look at your fly shop, which we're going to dig into here a little bit, I mean, how does that look for you? I'm not sure how many years you've been doing the shop, but ha- have things evolved a lot over the years? Uh, we started the shop 30 years ago. So it's, it's been good to me. Uh, you know, this, this is a, an interesting business. It's a very small community compared to other businesses, you know, Walmart does more business in a day than what the fly industry as a whole does in a year. <laughs> oh, no way. Is that's a pretty true fact right there, stat? That's a pretty true fact, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. So it's, you know, it's you don't expect to get a thousand people through the door in a, a year. But the people that come in are are genuinely interested. They're they're looking for information, they're looking for knowledge. Some of them want the latest and greatest, newest and coolest stuff. Most of them just want stuff that works right. And the industry does a pretty good job of weeding out the stuff that's just foo-foo and uh, really gives us a better idea of of what works. Now, there's different brands, and everybody has their own feelings on brands, but that's always going to be a thing of brand loyalty. But as far as what goes on with the gear, that's uh, other than technological advancement, you know, better graphites, better monofilaments and so on. Um, You know, flies are really about it. And even those, you know, uh, you look at the, the latest fly that's the rage on YouTube or whatever. And a year later, you know, it's gone. Hmm. And, uh, when you look at the, I'm really kind of an old schooler, or I guess I've come an old mm-hmm. schooler just out of longevity. It's the older, more consistent patterns that, you know, I mean, why are woolly buggers still so popular after 60 years? Well, yeah. because they work. You know? Exactly. They're simple and they work. That's right. Yeah, that is cool. Well, I'm glad you went on to the flies because your, you know, your fly shop, we tie it, you know, kind of has that in the name and, and I want to dig into some flies. Maybe we're going to talk a little about, you know, just general Wisconsin and, and maybe some flies and and that. But um, but bring us back. So 30 years ago, you start this fly shop kind of in the early 90s, somewhere in there. Why did, uh, how did that come to be? What, why a fly shop? Uh, well, I was always, uh, always in fly fishing. Uh, when I was a kid, I sold flies to the local sporting goods store. And I didn't have a real teacher. I had herders catalog. And my mm. grandpa, <laughs> yep. and grandpa tied warm water flies. He didn't fly fish for trout. I'm not sure he ever fly fished for hmm. trout. But we had three trout streams that flowed into the lake that we were on, so it was not that difficult to canoe up far enough to find some brook trout somewhere. 
So uh, you know, that, that was the first trout I ever caught was a brook trout. Still been in love with them ever since. I think I caught, caught the first one when I was about eight or nine years old. Yep. Yep. So basically you, 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 like you said, you've been doing it since you were six and the fly shop was probably just a natural, uh, like was it always, did you always think of it as kind of like, even as a kid thinking, Oh man, I would love to have a fly shop. Or was there some time when it just popped in and there was this opportunity? No, it was an opportunity thing. I never, I never grew up thinking that I was going to be a fishing guide or, or own a fly shop or anything like that. My parents owned a boys and girls summer camp. I grew up on a summer camp. So, uh, you know, there was always a million things that had to be done to keep the place up and running. Uh, and my fishing opportunities were early in the morning or in the evening after all my chores were done. <laughs> hmm. So, yep. uh, but I was, I was an entrepreneur. My grandpa set me up in the worm business so I could sell worms to the campers. Hmm. <laughs> and nice. we had a 22 range. I would actually dig the 22 slugs out of the sandbank and flatten them down they come out about the size of a nickel and you could fold those over and i sold those <laughs> to the campers for uh sinkers <laughs> mm -hmm. wow there you go so you're always doing it yeah i was always doing it, but i i uh became an engineer was uh worked for gm for a little while and then international and i got into the school bus business and i was uh i was chief of maintenance of a large school bus company for about 20 years and that uh the stress of that started to really hurt me physically and mentally and my doctor told me i had to get out of there and uh at about the same time that i had my time in the company got sold and uh it was a perfect opportunity for me to do something that i wanted to do rather than do something that that uh rewarding making sure every kid in the neighborhood was safe it was still a you know very stressful job so getting out of that stress and and getting into something uh like a fly shop was just kind of a a natural flow for me i had, uh, i was very involved with trout unlimited and with the the fff so uh it, it was like a next step for me yeah i had no retail experience so that was a little difficult to to try to work my way through that. But I've owned a shop for 30 years, so I must have been doing something right along the way. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you jumped in somewhere around the uh, the river runs through it kind of craziness right back in the 90s. Just before the river runs through it thing, we got in. And that was yeah. actually a really big boost for business uh, when that came about. Uh, my first shop, the first place that I was located in town here, was right on main street and uh i was being forced into being a uh more of a gift shop than a flock shop and i really didn't want to be a gift shop but people came in and insisted on having all this gifty stuff that was associated with fly fishing uh, and after about about 12 years we sold that building built a new building out on the edge of town where we had a little bit more autonomy and less foot traffic, but more of the fly fishing people that we really wanted to serve. So right. uh, it, it was a good move for us. Yep. 
Yeah, I've heard that before from other uh, fly shop owners that getting, even though it takes a little bit more time to get out of town, you're you're better off because you lose the the just the people that aren't really the the hardcore fly fishing folks, right? And you you kind of get those people back. Uh, but no, this is good. So, um, well, let's dig into a little bit here now that we have a little background on on your history. We might touch back on some of this. I was kind of interested. You mentioned the the school bus. Just quickly before we jump into a little more on some of the year in, in Wisconsin, uh, what was the school? Was this Bluebird or what was the company? No, no, it was a private company. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking we had, um, I remember back, pro- this was probably 30, 40 years ago myself, my dad was a guy and he took on the owner of one of the big I think it was from Carolina. I think it was the North Carolina uh, school bus company, one of the big companies that owned. Uh, I can't remember. It wasn't Bluebird. It was the other one, um, the manufacturer of the actual uh, school let's bus. Let's see. Thomas was a big one. Yeah, it was Thomason. We had a lot of Thomas buses. Those were Thomas. those were really good. Yes. Uh, units. Yeah, that was a good. That was a good bus. Yeah, he was. I'm not sure where that, where he's at, but that was that's my connection to the school bus uh, <laughs> industry. But so let, let's take it to um, you know Wisconsin just quickly. I want to do a little year in review. So you know, if we're thinking Mayish, mid May in that period, what what are you like? Because you do some guiding there. What what are you focusing on? What are you getting excited about fishing in, in that period? Well, um, I'm in the northern part of the state, the far northern part of the state, at the highest elevation. Hmm. roughly in the state. So uh, what happens south of me, uh, I live on the top of a big plateau. Uh, it's called the, the North Woods of Wisconsin, or you've heard the Northern Highlands. Mm-hmm. And I'm at the very top of that plateau. So our weather, I'm only 40, 45 miles from Lake Superior. So our weather is much more affected by Lake Superior to our north than it is by anything else. Uh, there's like virtually no snow 80 miles south of me. And I, and I got winter still here. Uh, so, and that's just something that we deal with here. Uh, but it's, you know, it's all good. I mean, this is a, this happens to be a really bad winter last year. We had 70 degrees at this time. Oh, wow. So, you know, it, it, it just, this is just, we're pretty sure the North Pole kind of slipped south and sitting right over us right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but so the, our fishing really starts about the middle of May. Okay. Uh, that's when bugs start hatching. The water is warmed up enough. The spring runoff has come down and uh, everything is, is starting to, to look pretty good. So prior to that, the fishing season usually starts the first week of May. This year, it's the latest that it can start. It's a just a calendar thing. It always starts the the first Saturday in May is when when fishing season starts. Now, I'm in technically what they call northeastern Wisconsin, uh, but I'm about as far west as you can go in northeastern Wisconsin. Okay. So Tim is also in northeastern Wisconsin, but he's about as far east as you can go in northeastern oh, Wisconsin. <laughs> there you go. So so we're like three hours apart from each other, three and a half hours. And, and he's farther south than I am, at much lower elevation. Yeah. As an example, I'm about three and a half or four hours from Green Bay. Green Bay is more than a thousand feet lower in elevation than I am. Holy cow. Now, you know, if you're in the Rocky Mountains or in the Appalachians, a thousand feet doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you're in Wisconsin, it's a big deal. (laughs) 
I'm a thousand feet above Lake Superior and about 1100 feet above Lake Michigan. Right. So you guys are fishing. So when you come into mid-May, you're kind of, uh, what species are you thinking, are you starting out with there? Everything, 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 everything. Yep. Every warm water species you can think of and all the cold water fishing. Like I said, the bugs start hatching then. So the fish, the, the trout are starting to look up. The fishing suddenly be get, gets to be a lot better. Once we get to those hatch periods, the Hendrickson's are going to be our first major hatch of the year. And then everything just kind of falls in line right after that. Mother's mm-hmm. Day caddis and sulfurs and brown drakes. and So you kind of get everything going. And then do you also, like in your specific area, since you're higher, does the, you know, midsummer, does it still get too hot or is that, is that still prime time for fishing, like August, all that? August tends to slow down a little bit and it's, it's kind of a seasonal thing. You know, it's not only are the days getting a little shorter, but we've had the heat for, you know, a couple of months and, when I say heat, I'm talking, you know, it gets up into the 80s during the day and down into the 50s at night. Right. So uh, pretty nice, actually. Pretty good summers there. Well, that's why everybody comes here in August and wants it to fish like it's May. <laughs> right. And the bugs are and the, and the bugs aren't as bad as you think, right? Right. Yeah. The bugs are all gone by that time. You know, the, the mosquitoes, there's not many mosquitoes or black flies or any of that stuff around. Um Temperatures are nice compared to the rest of the world, but our plants are starting to die off. Our aquatic plants, they've gone through their their seasonal life cycle. So by the time you get to August, things are the end of August, things are slowing down quite a bit. And we haven't had a frost or colder temperatures. The days aren't that short yet. You know, after Memorial or after Labor Day, that'll happen. Um our musky season up here doesn't start until Memorial Day weekend. So unlike farther south in the state where it starts in early May, ours doesn't start until early June. Totally early June. Yeah, there you go. Okay, and then and then just to wrap this up, I know we're kind of going through this quickly, but then at the end of the year, when, when do you kind of start, when does it kind of pick up back cold and you wrap things up on the fishing side? Usually somewhere around the middle of November, it, it starts to ice up too much and, and then we're done. Okay. Mid-November. So you got that. So pretty much you punch it in between May and November and then the winter time, are you just kicking back uh, tying flies and is that what's your winter look like? Yeah, that's mostly what I do in the winter time. I do, uh, for the last couple of years, I've done Zoom classes for fly tying and that's been really kept me busy all mm-hmm. winter much more so than doing the in-person classes uh, in the shop. It becomes technically more difficult. I got to make fly tying kits that I got to send out to everybody who's in the classes. You know, I've got to write a lesson plan and do all that stuff. So, oh, yeah. so you do that. So somebody comes in right now, if you had stuff going, they would actually get a, like a kit in the mail and a lesson plan. Then you would take them through on zoom. Yes, that's correct. That's amazing. Yeah, I've heard that too. We haven't talked a lot about the Zoom classes, but I know, um, you know, we did an episode a while back on fly tying. Um, 
and uh, and our guest was mentioning that yeah, he's he can actually teach better behind the camera than he can in person because you know what I mean. You can zoom in on it. He can show different angles, stuff like that, right? Do you find it's actually easier teaching uh, than in person? No, I don't. I don't like it as much because I can't see their progress. I can't see the oh, students' right. progress. And if they're hung up on something, I can get up and walk over to them and say, hey, here, let me guide your hands and show you how to do that. So some of it isn't as easy. It's from my perspective, if, if all I was doing was sitting there and tying and showing you how to do it, sure, it's, it's easy. And I put the camera between me and the fly. You do. So, so you're getting the, and I was just going to say the guy that was on recently was Tim Flagler who mentioned it and he's kind of unique, right? He's he, he did mention it's easier for him, but he is kind of a unique tire, but he does that too, right? He has the fly. So essentially the cameras between look, so you're getting that view of your, your view, right? Of, of what it looks like. Exactly. And I think that's important uh, because then you can see from the tires point of view, because that's what you're looking at when, you know, even if you go to a show and you're standing there, looking at somebody, it's more difficult for you to see what their hands are doing if you're looking at it from the opposite side. Uh, think of how many times you've turned, walked around behind a tire asking me, can I look over your shoulder? Oh, right. You know? Yep. Yeah, you're right. So from that aspect, if all I had to do was sit on the camera and tie the flies from that aspect, that's the easy part. Explaining exactly how I want the thread to push the material around, how much thread pressure to use, how to pull straight down on the thread or toward you or whatever. That becomes much more difficult because cameras are still Mm -hmm. two-dimensional. So things tend to kind of flatten out, and it's hard to sometimes understand. And without feedback of me seeing what the, the the student is doing, sometimes it's it's a slower process. Yeah, that makes sense. And I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but from the student perspective, yeah, you're not seeing everything they're doing, so you just kind of have to hope that they're going to ask questions, right? If it, if something's not clear. And and are you getting students? I mean, I guess the one nice thing about Zoom is people can come from all around the country. Do you find you're getting folks mostly local, or is this kind of folks all around the country? I would say it's regional. Uh, regional, I, right. Yeah. Now, when I did them, I did three segments. One, four classes, was cold water flies. One was warm water flies. Then I had one for steelhead flies and one for saltwater flies. So I got, I got more regional coverage from other people outside of the Midwest, uh, because they wanted to learn more about those other types of, of flies. My musky one is always the big one there. Yeah. Musky flies, that's always got Musky's people always good. Yeah, all over the country. When's the last time you were out and about, maybe around the city, maybe in a new place, and saw a little body of water? Maybe there's even a, a fish rising on the surface there, and... Uh, and since you were on your way to some family event, you didn't have your fly rod with you. Well, Rare Gear has you covered now because you have no excuses. You've got a rod that can pack up small enough to fit in your pocket, travels well, and is totally protected. 
it fits in just about any bag and has the reel and line all connected and you can literally telescope this out like a lightsaber and you might be thinking this is definitely some type of a gimmick but no i can tell you this is definitely a good solid quality rod it has no guides the fly rod looks very much like a fly rod but it has no guides that's part of the the way it packs up so if you want to check this thing out you can head over to rare gear right now and take a look at this bad boy derek has a few good videos over there you can see how it works and uh and you can just get started right now right now that's raregear.com r-e-y-r gear.com and you can check out probably the most unique rod you've seen all year maybe in your lifetime and I wanted to talk about that today. Maybe we could just start that off. And so species-wise, before we jump into muskie, just give me a rundown. So we're talking um, brook trout. Uh, what are the species you fish for throughout the year? In our streams, brook trout is king, but we also have brown trout. Not as big a population, but very big fish. Mm-hmm. And then we have, we're close enough to the Lake Superior, so we get the salmon and the steelhead. Okay. And, and uh, so with steelhead, then we get, baby rainbow trout in some streams uh to our north here in the up and i'm only i'm only five miles from the up so that's that's local water as far as we're concerned and then of course the warm water fish we've got everything uh we don't have carp we're too Mm. far north to have carp uh but we do have uh similar species red horse sucker white suckers black suckers but then there's the the panfish walleyes, smallmouth and largemouth bass, northern pike, and of course muskies. And Boulder Junction, our claim to fame is we are the muskie capital of the world. That oh, so is, that's it. That, that's our registered trademark. So That's it. That's amazing. All right. This is perfect. So, well, I, we can't, we, I, I do want to talk about flies. I would love to kind of get a, um, you know, your, your top uh, 10 list of, you know, maybe a fly for each of those species. But, um, but I want to jump into, before we get there, I want to jump into musky really quick so we don't miss that. And, and just start us off, you know, on the musky end, you know, time-wise, I guess, are we kind of, what is that? If some, if I was going to come out there and I say, Hey, we want to do a trip. I want to do a trip with you. When, when, when would be the best time to head out? Well, I, I tell people the season opens the first week of June. So that first 10 days or so of June is always really good uh, just because fish haven't been picked on since, you know, last November. So, you know, that, that makes sense. Um, so that's that's a really good time period. And the other and probably the best time period is from that middle of September to about the third week of October. That's... Uh, that's trophy time. That's when the big fish really start to move. But musky fishing is good all season long up here. The mm. water temps, for the most part, don't get too warm. Uh, our rivers are relatively shallow. So, you know, with a few exceptions, a deep hole up here might be eight or 10 feet deep. So, you know, as far as the river fishing goes, the lakes, there's thousands of lakes. Uh, in uh, the township of Boulder Junction is like five and a half square miles. There's 200 lakes. Oh, and a, wow. And 198 of them have muskies in them. Oh, my gosh. 
So Holy cow. Yeah, if I go five minutes in any direction, I can catch muskies. No uh, kidding. I, I'm looking out my back window at a lake that in another three weeks is going to be full of spawning muskies. Wow. So they're in the muskie, and I don't know exactly on kind of their life history, but I guess that's part of it, right? They're, they're migrating. Are they migrating back and forth between kind of the lakes and rivers, and you're hitting them on both ends? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now there are some some of the larger rivers have have uh, sustainable populations that are seasonably migratory. They they go to the deep holes in the winter and they stay in the deeper holes, and then for spawning in the spring, they move up to uh, the rapids and riffles, spawn there, and then kind of depending on water levels. Like last year, we had a really dry year, real low water levels. So it pushed the muskies farther downstream, more into their overwintering areas than they're comfortable with. They, they prefer to, to move out into the shallower water. Um, I've said for years up here that a muskie in a river can live in two to four feet of water until it gets too cold for them. All right. There you go. So it's, again, water temperature, and then they're moving around. And so it sounds like, yeah, pretty much you can... Anywhere up in your neck of the woods, muskie's going to be hot. Is it, you know, does everybody, does it seem like a lot, you know, the majority of people are focusing on muskie, or is there a good mix of trout and muskie and everything else? Uh, there's a pretty good mix. Of, of course, being in the muskie capital of the world, you know, you get a whole lot of interest in, in muskies here. That just goes with the territory. But there's some really good trout water. There's some awesome smallmouth water in our rivers around here. Our lakes are very prolific as far as uh, multiple species go. I would say the only species that's really having uh, a difficult time right now is the walleyes. Those, those fish are, yep. are declining. And that's partially due to uh, um, the, the water temperature changes that global warming, climate change, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, it's limiting the, the walleye reproduction, but the bass reproduction is through the roof. You know, right. I, I mean, if we don't, if we don't catch a four to six pound smallmouth every time we go out for smallmouths, we feel cheated. No kidding. Yeah. And, and there, huh. there's lots of them around here. I mean, the biggest we've landed is eight and a half pounds out of a river. Wow, that's amazing. So, and then muskies, we're talking, obviously, this is a big fish. It's also known as a fish of what? It's the, the fish of 10,000 casts. Is that is that still? That's correct. Yeah, I did a, I made a video for Cortland, oh golly, probably about 25 years ago. It was the first muskie fly fishing video ever made, uh, a how-to video. It was about a half hour long. And uh, trying to get people to understand that when you have the core area of so many muskies, it doesn't take 10,000 casts. Oh, it uh, doesn't. No. So you guys don't follow that rule necessarily. And, and so what is it like? So let's take us there to the, to the water. If we're, let's just take that June period. So early June or whenever the conditions are right. Are you head, are we heading out to maybe a few different lakes or waterways or how does that look as far as, you know, how are you trying, how would somebody find their first muskie if they're heading out there? The populations of muskies are going to be stronger in the lakes than they are in the rivers. So you would probably want to fish a lake first. 
but there's a lot of use on the lakes here. Any musky lake that you go to is going to have a half yeah. a dozen other boats on it doing the same thing. So you may want to pick a waterway that's a, a connecting river between several lakes or something like that. Uh, because early in the season, those fish are still going to be really shallow water oriented. You know, after they're done in the bedroom, they need a cigarette and something to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So they're, they're hanging around in the bedroom and picking off all the bluegills that came in right after them to, uh, oh, wow. to, to spawn. So, uh, on any given evening in the shallows, on any lake around here, you can see a couple dozen muskies on, on bluegill beds. So uh, stalking the flats quietly and sight fishing to them early in the season is uh, is a big deal. I mean, that's a lot of fun. Now, you're, so you're you're it's kind of like tarpon fishing. You know, you're only going to get so many shots. It's not like blind casting where you're casting all day long to get a few shots you're you're actually trying to pick your shot um so it's hunting fish wow and that's that's very appealing to some people to getting out there and and slowly picking your way through these these boggy weedy areas looking for a fish that's laid up and trying to put a cast on that fish that the fish will recognize as food and attack Mm. And are you fishing, is this pretty much exclusively out of a, like a boat or are there other ways to do this? Uh, you can't wait it. Yeah. There's no ways. It's too soft a bottom. Yeah. Too soft. Right. So you got a boat and what is the preferable, like, are you seeing people in all sorts of canoes, boat, you, you name it out there fishing for them? Yeah. There's, there's, you name it stuff out there. I've brought my flats boat back from Florida. I actually use my flat skiff. So oh, I've wow. got a pulling platform on the back and a, 20 foot pole and i can i can push this around if it's too soft i won't use the pole i'll use a trolling motor oh gotcha and is this sight fishing for musky uh, are you seeing a lot of people doing is this kind of the preferable way to do it or just the most exciting it's the most exciting it's not the preferable way to do it yeah most people don't do it now and the gear guys of course they're throwing two by fours with hooks so they're they're doing something completely different uh, but if you're fishing, if you're stocking the shallows and you're looking for those, you know, 35 to 45 inch fish, which to me are the most exciting because those fish are still really well am- animated. You know, everybody wants to get a 48 to 55 inch fish because that's the holy grail. 50 inches is the holy grail. Oh, it is. Yep. But, uh, but those fish really don't fight near as much as those fish right around that 40 inch size range do those those fish are just much more exciting they 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 jump they run they do all kinds of fun stuff and those big fish are they're kind of like a boxer they got a dozen good punches in them and then they run around the boat for a half hour (laughs) right exactly there you go so okay so you're out there on i mean basically kind of yeah like on the skiff and in your tracking, you said the bluegill, right? Is or is that the species mainly that you you kind of know where they are, and then you're finding the muskie? Or how are you finding these muskie? Well, that's that's generally it. Is that the the bluegills are going to be on their bedding areas, and the muskies will be 
kind of hanging out on the fringes of those, you know, it's always funny because, or amazing, I guess, not funny. You get into a bluegill bed and you just sit there for a while. You let everything kind of settle down. And pretty soon you see these bluegills all swimming around. And there's a there's a 45-inch muskie laying there. Oh, wow. And it's right, right in the middle of the beds. And the bluegills are just kind just of like. sitting there like he's just. Yeah. And the bluegills are just kind of going about their regular business. No big deal. And then all of a sudden, something rings a bell. And the bluegills get all tense, and they're like, "Oh crap, Mom's going to eat now." <laughs> I hope it's not me. And wow. and the the whole demeanor of the surrounding area changes, and all of a sudden that fish goes from, I don't know, looking like it was asleep, to I'm going to eat something now. Dang! And it's going to die. And the fish, you'll see the fish kind of slowly turn, and it'll pick out its prey. And you see its body kind of curl up just a little bit. And the fins get real tense. And the next thing you see is a little puff of mud. And it's gone. Oh, wow. And, and it ate whatever it was after. And are you sitting there just uh, and you're just watching this whole thing because you're waiting for that, that one fish uh, you know, to make a cast to it? Yeah. And what I found is if I can see them early enough, and if I'm up on the platform, I can. I'm six and a half foot tall. I get up on my pulling platform. My eyes are 10 huh. feet above the water. So if I see the fish early enough and we can get a bead on him, I don't cast to his face. I cast behind them because if we cast to their face, these fish get chased all their lives. Yeah, They're not dummies and they know that their food doesn't fall out of the air and into their face. <laughs> So if we cast behind the fish, we can get that reaction that I was talking about. The fish slowly turns, puts eyes on the bait. He tenses up, and you better be ready to set the hook. Oh, wow. Because you, know, you won't see the fish coming. They're that fast. I mean, they have a burst speed that's 70 miles an hour. Now, they're a cheetah. They can't keep that up for long distances. Yeah. But I've seen them go 30 feet in the blink of an eye. Wow. Wow. And you're fishing in two feet of water, but the huh. water is still a little too cold for them to take a topwater bait. So they're primarily focused on, on what's under the surface. So you need a fly that hovers above the bottom so you can't use a, a sinking line. An intermediate tip line works the best. It's a lot of fun to, to stalk those fish and to try to beat them at their own game. That's it. So, and, and you mentioned a couple of things, the flies and the gear. And so on the fly, so what, what would one fly be? If somebody was going to be trying to do this, what, what would be one good pattern? Well, you don't want a real big fly for that time of the year. Cause these, these fish are eating five and six inch bluegills, mm. you know? So you need a, you need a pattern that kind of looks like a bluegill or kind of like a perch. You don't want it more than six inches long. Uh, you want it to have a, a good side-to-side -side swimming action, but it has to do it at a fairly slow speed because you're not ripping the fly through anywhere, and it's got to be fairly weedless. You still have a lot of dead weeds left over from the year before, so you want something that, that won't just lay on the bottom and catch all the weeds, but it can't float either because there aren't any floating, there aren't any surface baits available 
for the fish at surface foods. So you want a fly that rides about about a foot down and to try to keep it in that zone. And of course, you know, uh, muskies are notorious for following. And sometimes they follow you all the way to your toenails, look at it and say, yeah, no, no thanks. Hmm. Other times they get all the way to your toenails right to the edge of the boat. And they go, yep, I got to have that. Wow, man, that's it. And then, and so these fly, like you said, there's probably a a bunch of different uh, types and names. Is there one, if somebody wanted to look at something online? Uh, We make, we make a fly called a big green. It doesn't look like a musky fly. It's only about five inches long, but it is an absolutely amazing fly at that time of the year. Uh, I have more people that buy big greens from me than any other fly that we have. It's got a wire weed guard on it, uh, but it's easy to throw. You could throw it with a nine weight. Um, you could throw it with an eight weight, but an eight weight, well, some of the eight weights today are okay. But mm-hmm. most of the eight weights, you might be a little undergunned unless you're in, we've got some lakes around here that we call action lakes. They've got muskies that are a big one, might be 40, 42 inches. Most of them are going to be 30 to 35 inches long. Yeah. An eight weight would be perfect for those fish. Okay, so so we got the eight weight, eight or nine weight. Uh, yeah, it's good. And then and then the line you said intermediate. What what type of line are you using? If you, you want to go buy that line, what would that be? You know, I would go out and I'd get the Cortland Ghost Tip line. It's a fifteen yeah. foot clear intermediate tip, and and in those shallow water situations where you're fishing in three feet of water or less, it's perfect. But it's a springtime line. It's not a line that you're going to use for the rest of the year. Mm. Okay. So you're not going to use it in, in September, like you're saying, the other hot time. What, what would you be using then? I'd go to the, to the uh, compact intermediate. I think that's probably the best intermediate line available today. It's a full intermediate line. Shoots like a gun. Um, mm. It's really a great casting line. And what I do with those intermediate lines for later in the year is I carry with me a series of one to foot, two foot and three foot mini heads of lead core. Mm. And I loop those on the end of the line and then I put my leader on and that will instantly, a two foot piece will instantly take me a foot deeper in the water column. Gotcha. So I can, I can adjust my depth range if the if the full intermediate line isn't getting quite as deep as I want it to get, all I got to do is just put on one of those mini heads and I'm there. I, I don't have to worry about it. That's it. So you got one line. One line does it all. Yeah, it makes my system much more versatile. Now, if I was fishing in a lake and I'm fishing in October and the muskies are all running at about 10 feet deep, I'm going to use a 25 or 30 foot sink tip line. But, yeah. you know, a type six, because I got to get down there. But if I'm fishing a river, I can probably get away with that two foot or three foot mini head stuck on the end of my intermediate line. So, you know, it's going to be relative to the water depths that you're dealing with. But that, that intermediate with those mini lead core heads really makes sense to me. Lake Lady Rods builds a beautiful, distinct custom rod, and we just recently finished up a an amazing giveaway. 
And you can follow that if you head over to uh, just search Lake Lady on the website. And you can check out the blog post for that. Chris detailed all of the hows and, and what's and why's about his rod and what makes it so special. Lake Lady only uses high quality top of the line components and rod blanks. And uh, I can definitely attest to this with my custom rod. I've got a little four weight that casts like a dream. The thing's super light, fits me like a glove. Chris did a really good job at uh, with his little process of understanding the person, the size, everything, and then putting together a really clean, super awesome rod. Lake Lady also restores and builds bamboo rods from scratch. All sorts of good stuff going on. Chris definitely has the rod building passion. You can check out Lake Lady right now, wetflyswing.com slash Lake Lady. That's L-A-K-E-L-A-D-Y. Check it out right now. See what Chris has going and see if he can hook you up with a beautiful custom rod. And we're back to say June. And like you're saying, we're in the shallows casting right behind. So you got a fish, you're sitting there. When are you casting... When do you make that cast right behind its head? How do you know when to actually make the cast? And then once you make it, are you sitting there? And then what do you do with your fly? Okay, so I, I'm, I'm casting behind the fish's tail. Oh, behind his tail. Wow, you're way back there, yeah. Yeah, I'm way back. Yeah, I don't want to show him. I don't want to show him the fly. I don't want to bring the fly right past his face. I want to bring the fly about five or six feet out ahead of him and give him a chance to react to it. Uh, if that doesn't work, then we'll try a cast a little bit closer to the fish. And it could be that the fish already knows we're there. And he's like, yeah, I'm not eating anything you're going to throw at me. You know, yep. I, I didn't just jump off the potato wagon. So, right. And in that case, you know, after we try three or four slightly getting closer to them, then I'll say, uh, go ahead, put it right across its nose. Let's see what happens. Gotcha. You know. Uh, and and it could be that that fish is just sitting there warming up in the sun and digesting and it's not going to eat anything even if right. it was a, a bluegill that swam past its nose <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's awesome so so basically you're trying to get it going then once it starts it, are there all sorts of different uh, follows and takes or once it starts once it starts moving towards your thing take us there how are you stripping in on that well i i'm trying to to animate the fly enough to get the fish's attention. Once I got the fish's attention, once he sees it, once he decides I see that fish start to tense up, I know he's going to attack, then we try to speed it up just a little. You don't want to rip it. You just want to make it go a little faster. It's like all of a sudden the bluegill knows he's going to get eaten. you know. And that's just seconds before the attack happens. Uh, but those are the types of things that we try to set up for. Uh, once I see that fish starting to track the fly and turning his body, then it's make it go a little faster, pause it for a little bit longer, make it look kind of like, oh, geez, I really need to get out of here, but I'm not feeling real good. You know, give the fish an excuse to attack. Yep. There you go. And, and of course, this is all of this stuff is happening in seconds. So you, you don't get a whole lot of time to, to think about it. It's one of those things that you just try to do as instinctively as you can and, and try to make it look vulnerable. Yep. And are you doing that all the way to uh, right up to the boat when you do the figure eight? Yes. All the way to the boat. And I'd say probably about 
25 to 35 percent of our fish will convert in those situations to an eat uh, on the figure eight. Most of the eats are going to happen out away from the boat because we're in real shallow water. If we're if we were in six to eight feet of water, then you can probably convert closer to fifty percent of the fish oh, wow. on an eat uh, on the figure eight. On the figure eight, wow, that's amazing. So basically, these fish that are coming in, if they get to the boat or close to the boat, they're they're like half of them almost are wanting to take it or will take it. Yeah, yeah. If they're charging hard and they're 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 wanting to eat, they'll, they'll eat it at the boat if you can manipulate the fly properly. You know, yeah. I I do what I call a plunge eight when I'm when I'm about fifteen feet from the boat and I see the fish coming, I'll get the rod tip a good two feet down under the water, take the fish's vision away from the boat and keep him locked on that fly. And then as I, I strip the fly to within about a foot and a half of the rod tip and I'll plunge the rod tip down as I make the first turn and then I'll come up with it. And if I can move that fish up in the water column, uh, as I come around to the second part of the eight, I'll plunge down again. And I'm, when I move the fish down, I know he's locked on then. Then I'll move him up higher as I come back around for the, for the, the second or the third part of the eight. And usually when I make that, that next turn around, uh, I'll try to time it so that I can bring it right past the fish's nose. And most of the time they'll eat it. Wow. And that's right within, like you said, 18 inches, the flies within 18 inches of the tip top. Yeah. 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 You've got to have the fly that close so that you can guide the fly properly with the rod tip. If you've got three or four feet of line out behind the rod tip, you can't steer that fly. Oh, right. So you're totally steering it and you're, you're right on it and he's right on it up and down. And then, and when that fish eats the fly, don't set the hook. Yeah. You gotta let him swim away. I open my hand, I let the fish swim about four or five feet away, and then I just cross their eyes with a hook set. I want to make them feel it all the way down to the end of their fins. Oh, wow. So, so take us again. So, so right when he first takes it, don't set, but when, when, do, you, when do you set that? you got to wait for the fish to turn and swim away from you. So gotcha. the, it takes about five or six feet of line out. to let, let the lines just slide through your hands. Let that fish start moving away from you. And then when you strip set them, you just hamper them. Uh, and wow. you, can, you can feel it when the hook goes in. You know you got them. Yeah, that's right. Wow. That, that's pretty amazing. And, and now the fight, fight is on. I mean, once you have that fight, what, what's that look like once he's on? Uh, once they're there, on. Yeah. Once they all of a sudden realize that they're hooked. And that takes a couple of seconds. Then they'll usually make a short run, about maybe 20 feet or so. They get out about 20 feet, and then you start really laying the lumber to them. And you've already made a couple of strip sets by then, usually two, maybe three on a really big fish. Don't just keep strip, strip, stripping it. You know, in this situation, you don't keep setting because you can yank the fly right out of their mouth. You'll just tear it right out. Um, and usually they'll, they'll turn, and they'll come back towards the boat a little bit, and if it's a larger fish, if it's in that 40 inch range, they're going to start shaking their head and trying to throw the fly. 
And that's when you got to really keep the pressure on, put a big bend in the rod and keep stripping because the, then they're so fast that they can create slack so quickly by shaking their head, they'll create slack. So you've got to keep enough pressure on them so that they can't create any slack. Slack is evil. Slack will, that's it. That, that, that's it. They're gone. They'll, they'll yep. throw that hook so fast. It's not even funny. And then eventually you get them up to the boat and what's the land like when you're on the boat? Is that a pretty straightforward process? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you try to get the fish's head up. If you get the fish's head up, I've got a Beckman net that's four feet deep. You know, if I can get the fish inside the rim of the net, fish don't have a reverse. Mus- muskies have no reverse. They can only go forward. So if they get inside the net, they're in. That's it. Uh, I don't like these nets that are three or four feet in diameter because it's too easy for the fish to turn. But a, a net that's two and a half feet in diameter, but it's got a really deep bag, the fish swims in and he doesn't have enough room to turn to get out. So then I can I can get the, the edge of the net up and we can just take care of the fish from there, let them, let them splash a little bit in the net and settle down. Then we can get them released in the net. Yep, and they got that huge, that huge mouth. How is that? Is that that must be a pretty amazing landing that fish and taking a look at, it especially. I mean, are the big ones, the small ones, are they all a similar fight? Or well, you're saying that the, the smaller, little ones have a little bit better fight. Is that kind of how it works? Well, they they have more, they have more jumping ability, and, oh, and okay, so they they tend to to be a little more animated in the fight. The big ones are just power. You know, it's yeah. like hooking a Winnebago. I mean, they, they just have power, uh, power like you can't believe. And pike and muskies all are born with as many teeth as they're ever going to have in their mouths. And as they get larger and older, the teeth get longer and farther apart. Oh, wow. So uh, the opportunity for a fish to cut you off, the small ones will cut off your, your line, which is why we use wire, or yeah. they'll tear up the flies a lot more than the big ones will. The biggest one we ever landed was close to 40 pounds. And that, 40 pounds. that fish was never hooked. I almost always use uh, my own special wire weed guards on my hooks. And the fly, the fish hit the fly so hard, it started to blow it out its gill plates. And the apiculum, the, the part where the gills are attached underneath the throat, the fly slipped around that, and the weed guard kept it in place. The fish was never hooked. Oh, wow. We fought the fish for 40 minutes, landed it, and it was it never had the hook in it. But when I opened that fish's mouth and I looked down his throat and I saw where the fly was, I couldn't believe it. But it was so far down there. I got a nine-inch long pair of pliers, and they weren't even close. <laughs> And, and you know, just it. I, yeah, I looked at that and I said, oh man, I'm going to get hurt here. So I, I pulled out a, one of those fishing gloves that's supposed to be bulletproof, but it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I pulled my sleeve down over the top of my jacket, down over the top of the glove. And I said, well, here goes. I'm going to dive in and get it. And the fish actually let me do it. I couldn't believe it. Dang. Uh, so I had one fish a couple of years ago bit right through the bottom of the net. It, it just Jeez. put its head down in the bottom of the net and just kept biting and biting on the net till it went right through the net. 
that was oh still hooked gosh. up. We managed to land it anyway. <laughs> but I mean, that was an angry fish. That was a big fish wow. too. That's 32 pounds. So 40 pounds, how many inches is 40 pounds? Well, uh, that fish was, it was a river fish and the river fish don't tend to get as long as the lake fish do. Oh yeah. It was only about 49 inches, but yeah. it had the girth. Oh my God, that was a big fish. Yeah. Well, there you go. So these are pretty, pretty badass fish and sharp teeth. And it's like, oh yeah. They're exciting. And, and of course, like I said, the big ones are just power, uh, you know, the amazing amount of power that those fish have. They're just all muscle and, and the river fish. I think are stronger than the lake fish are. Lake fish are are lazy because they can get it anytime they want it. And a river fish doesn't get as much opportunity because the current is working against them all the time. So they're they're a more muscular fish than the lake fish are. Gotcha. There you go. Nice. Well, we have a uh, pretty good feel for. What it's like, I mean, it sounds like you are in the, like you said, the capital of the busky capital of the world. What is, you know, casting is always a challenge, can be for people. If you're casting a six-inch fly, trying to get them, you know, pinpointing that, I mean, any tips there on casting? How do you make that, you know, work? Or what do you tell somebody if they're coming out on a trip with you before and during pra when, they're, when they're practice? Practice, practice, practice. You got to get proficient at making about a 50-foot cast. Oh, wow, yeah. If you can, for river fishing, a 50-foot cast accurately, and I'm a stickler on accuracy. Within a pie plate. Within a pie plate, yep. Because three feet might as well be a mile some days. If you can put that fly in the fish's face, you have a much better opportunity of getting the take. Um, in lake fishing, the casting distances are much longer. We're talking 75, 80 feet. Oh wow! So this is this is legit. This is a serious. Uh, you got to be on the casting for this. Yeah, and and that's because now open water lake fishing. I'm not talking about the springtime sight fishing. Okay. Uh, there, there, the 50, 60 foot cast is probably what you're going to get. Yep. But the the open water blind casting in the lakes, the fish require the fly to be in in their sights for a certain period of time every fish is different oh. but the but the longer you make the cast the more opportunity you have because the lake fish are notorious for following they may follow the fly for 70 80 feet i won a tournament one year uh, and i saw the fish coming from 60 feet away followed all the way to the boat and i really didn't think the fish was an eater until i made the first eight and it opened its mouth a little bit and i knew it was going to eat Hmm. And and then I, I brought the fly right back in front of its face. The fish ate it without hesitation. That was 47-inch fish. It was a decent fish. There you go. So and, and on the lake, even when you're fishing with the sink tip line, like the Type 6, you're still seeing those fish when you're fishing out there? Oh, yeah. On the lake fishing, I, I would bet you 80% of the fish are going to eat within 15 feet of the boat. Wow. How does somebody know, you know, again, if they're heading out there, maybe they're listening right now, they're nearby, you know, where to go? Like, it sounds like there's lakes everywhere, ponds, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, is there an easy way to, you know, like, is there like probably some that have more pressure than others, things like that? Well, all of the, all the best lakes have, have more pressure, of course. Uh, and there's hundreds of boat landings around here, public boat landings. So that's not, 
that's not an issue as far as getting on most of the water. Some lakes have uh, are backcountry lakes. They don't have a boat landing. You need a canoe or a small skiff or something, a raft, that you can get in on that water. The lake might only be, you know, 75 acres, 60 acres, but, and it might only have a dozen and a half muskies in it. But if those muskies don't get picked on very much during the year, that might be a better opportunity. There's uh, there's a lot of lakes, hundreds of lakes. I mean, we've got thousands of lakes, right? Within a half hour, there's probably 5,000 lakes. Wow. So, you know, it's not a... It's not a problem finding a lake to fish. It may be a problem finding a lake to fish that there aren't eight or 10 other boats on. Mm, gotcha. <laughs> and, and that's where those smaller backcountry lakes where you're only going to get a few opportunities at might be a better choice. And then, you know, fish that lake, make two or three passes around it. If nothing happens, have a plan, go to Lake B and then Lake C and so on. Gotcha. Just cover, you got to cover the cover the right. ground and and when you go to those backcountry lakes are they are you dropping in this, a similar boat or are some of these things you drop in kind of boat you're carrying in that sort of thing yeah a lot of times i i fish out of pontoon rafts a lot i build and sell pontoon rafts so i i'm northwoods inflatables oh yeah 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 these are the big uh, i saw one of them the big gray uh, yeah so are these large and small uh, pontoon boats yeah i make them as small as 10 foot for two people and i make them as large as 14 foot for three people gotcha so you're fishing and on those um to some of these backcountry lakes i mean at 10 foot are you actually like, like packing that in or are you still getting it close to the lake uh, well packing it in may be you know 100 yards down the oh, trail okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's perfect. it's still relatively close. Yeah. Uh, there's a few places where I've got wheels that I've got set up a removable yep. wheel system, and you know we'll just strap the raft on the wheels and take it down the logging trail half a mile or so to get into this lake or that lake. That's right. Nice. So. Wow, yeah, this sounds pretty cool. So there's lakes everywhere, and it's literally just exploring. And probably, obviously, like always, you know, you talk to your local fly shop. You know, if they had questions, they can connect with you, and you could probably, you know, maybe give them an idea of which of the five thousand lakes, or maybe, like you said, which ones are less busy than others, something like that. That's right. And the Wisconsin DNR has got a website that is just fantastic. You can oh, go right. on there. You can dial up whatever lake you want. You know, you look at one on the map and you go, ooh, that's kind of out of the way. I wonder if that's got muskies in it or what's the access like? Is it public? And you get on the DNR website and it gives you all that information and it'll tell you the fish populations. Are they abundant? Are they common? Are they present? You know, those nice. kinds of things. Maybe you want to go pike fishing. Well, you can find a lake that doesn't have many muskies or any muskies in it, but it's full of pike. Yeah. So, you know... Those DNR maps are really great, and then combined with local knowledge uh, can really make a difference in your success rate. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip, and that's the DNR. We'll put a link in the show notes to that so people can grab that resource. And, um, well, as we take it out of here, I wanted to kind of, uh, start this off just with our, this is our coffee talk segment. We get a few questions from listeners and, and the tips you know, this is kind of just general, but on muskie, you've given us a ton of great tips, but if you had to break down a few just for muskie, somebody heading out there, you know, sometime this coming summer, starting in June, you know, what do you tell somebody either kind of before or what on the water, anything to help them get maybe their first muskie? 
Well, persistence pays off, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, we still call them the fish of 10,000 casts because they're grizzly bears, you know. There's not as many of them as there are of food sources because right. you need a whole herd of elk to feed a grizzly bear, you know. Yep. And, you know, what do grizzly bears eat? Anything they want. When do they eat it? Anytime they want to. <laughs> Can you stop yeah. a grizzly bear from eating? No. Can you make a grizzly bear eat? Not very often, but sometimes you can. (laughs) Hmm. That's good. Practice casting, get a 10-weight rod. If you're going to fish throughout the entire season, get a 10-weight. It's the most personal rod out there. Okay. Are there occasions when you might need an 11 or 12-weight? Yeah. Are there occasions when you might need an 8-weight or a 9-weight? Yeah. But a 10-weight will do you most of the time you're going to end up with three or four different types of line. Just deal with that. That's something that you're going to end up with. But if you start out with a full intermediate and then add those little sink tips, you'll be more versatile than starting out with a species specific line. I hardly ever use a floating line. Yep. So don't worry about the floating and the 10 weight. And so you mentioned the eight weight before that was more yeah, that's between eight, that- nine or 10. Yeah. Yeah, the eight weight and the nine weight are more specialty rods. The ten weight's going to be the most versatile. Perfect. Uh, so yeah, so the ten weight is good, and then, and I was just thinking as far as the rod itself. If you were to come in there today and pick up a rod, I know, like you mentioned at the start, there's a bunch of different brands. But what would be a rod you'd recommend? If you know, how do you look at that? How do you choose a rod if you're thinking ten weight? The more you spend, the better off you are. But is that, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it, it is what it is. Uh, but the Chippewa rods, uh, Tom Shanks, Ch- Chippewa rods, those are great rods for the money. Okay. Uh, I'm a real big believer in one piece rods because they don't uh-huh. break and they're so smooth to cast, but a lot of people oh, wow. can't transport one piece rods. So get a two piece rod. Don't get a four yeah. piece, uh, four piece rods are travel rods. I know the industry is kind of stuck on four pieces, but there's more and more rods that are being made in two-piece these days because the durability is much greater and the smoothness of the cast. When you're making 300 casts a day throwing a wet pair of socks, uh, something to cast smoother and is lighter weight, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, no, I love that. That is a, that is a great tip on the two piece and even the one piece, right? If you had to choose, if you weren't, you know, you would go with one piece first. Yeah, definitely. If I, if you have the the ability, the one piece rods are the way to go. There, there's no, no question about that. Those are perfect. Okay. So good. This is uh, I think this gives us a quick, uh, well, not a quick, a, a good summary of what we're looking at. If they want to dig in deeper, we'll send them uh, out to your place. And um, I just want to highlight really quickly uh, our little conservation uh, minute. And uh, we talked before about Trout Unlimited. Give us a quick little like minute summary of your connection to Trout Unlimited and maybe some of the work they're doing out there. Well, with TU works all across the country. They, they're, of course, uh, cold water habitat conservation organization. Uh, but you know, when they're, when they're repairing those cold water habitats, that water's still flowing downhill and trout streams have a finite length before the water gets too warm and it starts to transition over into warm water waters also. So 
they're protecting more than just cold water. And, and that's, that's a really big thing for all of our, our streams to be able to tap into those types of water situations where our, our fish up here are really migratory. So what might be good trout water in the springtime might be good smallmouth water in the summer or pike and musky water. So Trout Unlimited gives us the opportunity to, uh, to improve our water quality for more than just trout streams. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Awesome. And we'll, yeah, we definitely support TU for sure. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that. And, uh, and yeah, I just had one random one, uh, Bill, before we get out here, you mentioned, uh, your, uh, uh there earlier six, six, uh, you're a tall person. What was your, uh, did you have a sport? Were you a basketball or what was your back of the day? Yeah. I played basketball at university of Wisconsin. Oh, you did. Yeah. That's right. The Badgers. Yep. Right on, right on. That's pretty good. So and you were a, uh, what, like a shooting guard or? Uh, well, no, back in those days, I would be what you would call a power forward today. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah you're a power forward. There you go. And were you guys, how was the, uh, were you guys pretty good or? Nah. <laughs> we, we we had two guys that went on to play pros. They were good. They made the rest of us look good. We weren't that good. <laughs> were they big Nate? Were they anybody you'd know of? Or you... Yeah, Carl Pickens. He played for oh, Detroit yeah. for like 15 years. He was... Uh, he was our point guard. He was really good. Uh-huh. And Danny Lure, he didn't play very long, but he became a coach. He just retired from coaching. Oh, okay, uh, just a couple of years ago. So, oh, right on, right on. That's that's cool. Okay, I'll, I'll maybe I'll try to dig up a Carl Perkins. Uh, is it Carl Pickens? Pickens, yeah, yeah, Pickens. Okay, yeah, I don't. I often look that up. Nice. All right, Bill. Well, uh, you know, I this I appreciate you taking the time today and digging into this. And if anybody wants to take this further, we'll send them out to uh, your fly shop or or give you a call. Right? Is that the best place to connect with you? Yeah, give me a call. I'm always in the shop on Saturday. I never guide on Saturday, so I'm always in the shop on Saturday. On Saturday, okay. I'll, yep. uh, I'll also put in. Uh, we mentioned the flies at the start. I'm going to circle back around with you. And maybe get a kind of a top ten list of fly patterns just for general uh, Wisconsin that we can add into the show notes as well. So um, I'll circle back around on that. And uh, yeah, until we talk again, Bill. Appreciate your time today. And uh, yeah, looking forward to keeping in touch with you. And maybe uh, maybe we'll see you up there for some musky fishing. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. So there you go. If you want to find the show notes, the links, and check out some bonus action, wetflyswing.com slash 319. If you type in wetflyswing.com slash 319, you can get all the bonuses. Where are we heading next? Where are we heading next week? Ooh, I've got a treat for you. Not next week. I got a treat for you in a couple of days. We got some good... Some good stuff going here. We've got uh, Madison on, who is going to talk about some really cool stuff they have going. Some films they produced with a focus on the female angler, and uh, and but this really applies to everyone. This was a really uh, fun episode for me. So I hope you get a chance to check this one out. Uh, click over there and listen to Madison. Find out how they're changing the world. How they're changing the world over there. Before we get out of here, you can head over right now to uh to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway find out which giveaway we're running or maybe even easier just click uh click that uh follow button on your app of choice or however you do it and follow us make sure you get updated when that next episode goes live and i just mentioned which one that is so 
I'm going to get out of here. I am going to stop it right now and just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to that next episode, and I hope it comes soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.